and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Before we start, a quick reminder that we're running a listener survey so we can better understand what you'd like to hear from us. The link is in the show notes, and if you complete the survey, you'll be in with a chance of winning a Bunker t-shirt. Just a heads up, that's likely to be the most light-hearted thing that I say this episode. At midnight on August the 15th, 1947, British India was partitioned, political and religious fissure that created India and Pakistan. What followed was one of the greatest humanitarian catastrophes in the history of the world. Over 10 million people were displaced and in the ensuing communal violence between hundreds of thousands and millions of people died. This tragedy written in blood and tears marked the end of British colonial rule in the subcontinent and its effects are still felt 75 years on. Joining me to discuss the 75th anniversary of partition and its ongoing effects is Ishan Akbar. A fellow British Asian comedian, Ishan is the son of a Pakistani father and a Bangladeshi mother. Ishan Bhai, welcome to the bunker. Thank you for having me. Now, Ishan, what did and what does partition mean to and in your family? So my family background is that of Indian Hindus and Jains. Yours are Pakistani and Bangladeshi Muslims. These experiences are shortly vastly different. Well, I mean, for me, there's a very direct involvement insofar as my date of birth is the 14th of August, which is when Pakistan declared independence. Mm. And I don't know whether my dad planned that, (laughs) (laughs) just to have one over on my mum. But uh, Pakistan and East Pakistan, which were the two, uh, well, it was one country that was formed in 1947, plays a big part of my history because ultimately those two countries that were created in in terms of Pakistan and Bangladesh. That's my ancestry. Mm. And my maternal grandparents are Indian-Indian. They're from a part of India that remains India to this day in West Bengal. So the whole subcontinent is me. And that's not a fat joke. It Mm. is just, it's such a huge part of my history. And I feel very, very lucky that both my parents, both of them, particularly my mum from the Bangladeshi side, taught me a lot about the journey Mm. of Bangladesh becoming Bangladesh, but what partition did to her family. Uh, Whereas for my dad, they were probably less involved in the political movements. They were just, you know, a fairly lower middle class family in Pakistan, kind of unaware of what was going on around them until they saw that their Sikh Punjabi neighbours suddenly are walking away. Yeah, uh, in Sialkot and moving into India. Yeah. So your your father's situation seems more like the situation of my family, my family being from Ahmedabad in Gujarat, so still India, India, as it were, in India that is still uh, part of India, and they were in the in the majority there. So mm-hmm. what was experienced there was a heightening of tensions between sort of religious communities at that time. And that that's something that really persisted through the decades afterwards. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I was speaking to my dad in the lead up to this. And uh, one of the interesting things that he said was that for him, he was born in 1950. So just after being sort of one of Midnight's children and growing up in the aftermath of partition. But he was like, because this communal violence and stuff would occasionally just flare up through the course of he was 30 when he moved to the West and just over the course of those first few decades of his life, it wasn't even necessarily just thought of in regards to this is a link to 47. It's just that, oh, this is what happens, happens yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And it's uh, like like the sort of fish going along and saying this is water uh, yeah. and everything. And so, yes, could, could you talk a bit more about what then it meant for your mother's family? Because there was a movement there. Yeah. So after 1947, when East Pakistan was formed, so for the listeners who may, who may not know, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who's regarded as the father of Pakistan, mm. he was worried about how Muslims would be treated in a collective India 
And fast forward 75 years later, he kind of had a point, <laughs> right? Um, but he wanted to, he basically wanted to hold on to power. And the two Muslim majority parts of India were where Pakistan is and where now Bangladesh is. So from my mum's side of the family, the East Pakistani side of the family, they're all very erudite, educated people who were involved in the kind of upper echelons of politics and government. But over the course of the 20 to 25 years of it being East Pakistan, things got more and more fraught. So Pakistan felt like East Pakistan wanted way too much independence by virtue of wanting to speak their own language. They spoke Bengali. They spoke Urdu as well, but they wanted to speak Bengali. They wanted. They didn't have any people of East Pakistani descent in power, in government. And so therein began this slow civil unrest that eventually led to the big war in 1971, mm-hmm. which lasted just between about five to six months and about three million East Pakistanis were were killed during that time. And three of my uncles were executed. One was taken away and not found again, presumed dead. So it's a very deep part of our history. And my mum, when I would talk to her about it, she would just say to me that the British leaving the way they did and this creation of two separate Muslim states planted the seed for these problems to happen mm. 20 years later. Yeah. And I suppose like it, it's not really, it's it's not even a, a unique situation among imperial exits, right? Yeah. That this, this new state or states are formed and someone just basically goes, oh yeah, that'll probably be all right oh, anyway. Yeah. Catch you later. Yeah. And then down the line, it's almost like that there's a partition after partition or a further bifurcation after yeah. partition that led to the creation of Bangladesh and like yeah those those wounds sort of that were that were created perhaps first in 1947 yeah. remained open and yeah. it may be festering for the subsequent two and a half decades until 71 what to your mind are the ongoing effects of this like is it something that your elders still bring up do you feel that it's felt to this day to a certain extent certainly you know my my mum would say that the Pakistani side of our family weren't particularly welcoming towards her mm. because they had their views about East Pakistanis or Bangladeshis as they were then. There is a real sense, particularly from my dad, actually. He's been he's from the Punjab, and the Punjab was kind of split in 70-30 in Pakistan's favour. And he feels very Punjabi more than he does Pakistani. And he, mm. even now, will often say, it just seems such a shame that Punjab was split like this. Because Punjab could be a state in and of itself, mm. you know. The big one is cricket. <laughs> That's all like, can you imagine, like, an India-Pakistan united team? Yeah. It, they would just be the best. My dad used to play <laughs> cricket for, for under-19, so for Pakistan. And so those kind of things. But also culturally, you know, he, both my parents, there is this real sense of wouldn't it be great if we were actually just one? we sure we've got a good sense of having a Bangladeshi identity and having a Pakistani identity or an Indian identity. Mm. But there are so many cultural similarities. Sure, India's too big for them to be the same everywhere, but there's just enough for us to be one major superpower. Mm. And um, my mum certainly feels the sense of, or I did feel the sense of loss within our own family, kind of 20, 30 years after independence. So even now, when Independence Day rolls round... I talked to my dad and he's like, yeah, it's, I think it's fine that Pakistan has got an independence day, but I'd rather it wasn't like this. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. And uh, yeah, I think that from 
from an Indian perspective, I mean, th- there is definitely no world in which either of us are saying, like, in terms of the religious conflicts and yeah. problems, this is not something that emerged ex nihilo in yeah. 1947, as you said, there was a reason that Muhammad Ali Jinnah was and the Muslim Brotherhood were advocating yeah. for the creation of uh, Pakistan in the first place. Yes. These are centuries oh, long yeah. uh, sort of conflicts that have occurred between Hindus and Muslims. But certainly that in India and in, in Gujarat, that was something that ended up defining a lot of the second half of the 20th century for many people because these at a time where Pakistan, you know, is the, this is the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. A, a sort of state with very, very few people from religious minorities there, yeah. whereas Ahmedabad in particular remained a city that was definitely the Hindus of the vast majority, but there yeah. was a mixed thing. My father's school was in a Muslim area, and so there were periods of time where it's just like, oh, yeah, and then you just didn't go to school for a couple of months because there was violence and yeah. whatnot. And, and you think about that now, you're like, what? what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's... Uh, yeah. That's about to be, but so clearly these, you know, these these religious tensions and sectarian tensions that were by no means assisted by the events of forty seven continued to shape both the way that these newborn states looked at each other yeah. and saw each other with sort of suspicion, suspicion nuclear suspicion, nuclear suspicion eventually, yeah. right? And and communities within themselves, and I think I, I've mentioned on this. Um, podcast before, I remember being in India in 2014 when the Scottish independence referendum campaign was going on and there being an article in the Times of India about it and my my aunt uh, reading this article and saying with like clearly like experiencing like a real sadness as you said it, it was like like, I hope that that happened, that their country breaks up like that, so that they would know even the first thing about what it is yes. to have your country be torn apart yeah. like that. Yeah. And thinking that this was a woman who was born in the early 1950s, so in yeah. the aftermath of that, but clearly it's still hanging around. And not that she would have wished anything like what happened Absolutely. between India and Pakistan to uh, happen between England and Scotland or something yeah. like that. But th- that to me showed that it was a psychological thing that continued yeah. uh, throughout. Is there a particular thing, like I used to say in stand-up, like what were any of us taught about British history? Henry VIII, bit of a legend, World War II, that's yeah. it, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. And is there a particular, and that's obviously an oversimplification, but is, is there a particular thing, because we are discussing it now and it's in the media now, there's lots of things on the television in the newspapers, exhibitions. Yeah. Is there a particular thing you wish that the British people now knew about partition or that you wish you'd known when you were younger or through the education system? This is a very, very good question. Something uh, entered my radar quite recently. It actually goes pre-partition. It goes back to the uh, Battle of Plassey in 1775. Mm. And I recently learned about this. Were you reading the anarchy? Yes. (laughs) I was reading the anarchy and then I was like, oh, do you know what? I think I want to write a Blackadder-type sitcom about what happened (laughs) In 1775. But that was the start of when the British started making inroads into India proper because they took over that whole region, Punjab, Arissa and all this and Bengal. And so from that moment, and I think lots of Indians or Asians don't really know about that particular thing. From there, all the way to 47, I wish 
that we just understood the role, I'm going to call it the subcontinent, even though I hate saying that phrase, the role the subcontinent played in British wealth. Yes, absolutely. The role that the subcontinent played in elevating Britain way beyond its abilities. Yeah, through the expropriation of... yeah. And so it's something that, you know, when when I used to have a joke when I opened in places like Kent, where Mm. I'd say, look, you can be as racist as you want to me. I know you're uncomfortable. You can be racist. You can beat me up. You can do whatever. But just remember, I can probably buy everything you own. (laughs) Right. It's that whole notion that India has so much, has given so much to, quote unquote, the West, but particularly the UK. Mm. For us to be in the position of calling ourselves a first world country and referring to India as a third world emerging economy, mm. because all the money was taken away. Yeah. And I just wish more and more people understood how much that mattered. Yeah. There's a, I, I don't know if you've um, listened to Sweatshop Boys, uh, which is the rap project that Himanshu Suri and Riz Ahmed yeah. uh, do. And Riz Ahmed in uh, one of the tracks has a line, uh, where do you think all the sounds in your phone from? What do you mean Her Majesty's London? Where do you think all Her Majesty come from? from right, yeah, lovely, uh, exactly. And yeah, that, that is really great. And for listeners who are interested in learning more about that, another thing that I would recommend if you really if you have the stomach for it, uh, but there's a book called Late Victorian Holocausts written by the historian Mike Davis, uh, which has a chapter called India and the Modernization of Poverty. Right. And it's just, yes, recognizing the sheer extent. And I think that, that that is a thing that would be extremely valuable for younger people. That This was a site of unimaginable wealth uh, yes. w- when this uh, connection was first made between Western East and the British East India Company going over there to the extent that, you know, the, the Grand Moguls were like, who are these unwashed uh, yeah. Westerners rocking up on our yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, shores doing this? And the way that the tables turned and wealth was taken and things is is spectacularly fascinating, tragic uh, in all sorts of ways. But I think a very a very unknown thing. And I think also it's the case with a lot of immigrant communities, right? Where if when you know your grandparents or your parents, if you grew up in this country, but first had to move to very poor areas, yeah. Sort of work work themselves from the very bottom of the ladder, yeah. Up to, and you don't know the wealth of your own history. Exactly, is is a really thing, and it can it can one can find it deflating not to know that, and find it sort of energizing, angering all yeah. of these things well, to recognize, absolutely, wherever it might be. But also for me, it gives a real sense of value to being Asian, particularly South Asian, because. You know, I I don't know about you, but I've grappled with the racism or the microaggression, whatever it might be, towards just the Asian community at large. Mm. And when I started learning more and more about our own history, I felt a sense of, sure, I felt a sense of anger, but there was an overwhelming sense of pride to say, hold on, we had everything Mm. and everything got taken away from us. And for me to have a sense of pride and value in what it means to be Asian, Indian, Pakistani, whatever, that came from understanding the tragedy of that all of that being taken away from us. Now, moving forward, being in the 21st century, you and I are both 
second generation immigrants where we're British people, although we haven't sort of abandoned our Asian-ness, as yeah. I could tell by the fact that you were 45 minutes late for this recording. <laughs> uh, we're still very much operating on BPT and all of that uh, sort of thing. So how do you think, in terms of 47 and its consequences and everything, how do you think that we think about this as immigrants, really, and now living and growing up in the society that this time a century ago were the colonial masters, you know, like, how does it affect your perception of India? How does it affect my perception of Pakistan? How does it affect both of our perceptions of Britain? It's a very good question. I think certainly over the last few years, there's been a real move towards all communities, all minority communities in the UK, having a better understanding of their background and their stories. And I think that makes it slightly easier. I remember when I was, you know, when I was a, a kid in school, I was one of those weird kids that was just so proud to be Asian. I was like one of the few Asian kids in this private school. But I was, I loved it. And I, you know, I would sing Nusra Fadeli Khan. Mm. And, you know, people would, of course, they, they would take the piss out of me because they were like, oh, he's quite fresh, isn't he? He's like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm also very anglicized. But now I think nowadays people are a bit more comfortable with the idea of you just being proud of your heritage. Yeah. My relationship with being both, English, and I would call myself English when I would British, mm. being English and being Asian, I've got to a place in my life where I'm happy to be 100% both. Mm. And sure, I've had my Asianness questioned by other Asians. I've had my whiteness questioned by white people. But I'm both. I'm anglicised and I'm Asian. And I think that's great. Mm. And so learn, knowing about my history gives me that strength and that comfort to be able to say, yeah, hey, I, I can be both, and that's fine. It's the fascinating thing about these hyphenated identities and everything, because I, I actually think that I'm in a different place with it okay. than you are. And I What kind that, of place are you in? Well, I, I just think that, for example, like when, when I read about it, it's like, you know, you, because you have these two senses of us in your head, yeah. right? And uh, I'm, I'm, I read the history of... British rule in India and the Raj and partition and everything. And it's almost like my head's being like, I can't believe that we did this to us. And that's a very confusing yeah. position to be in. And I feel a great deal of, and I don't think it's particularly healthy to feel, but I do feel a great deal of anger when I think of some of it. But then I'm like, to what end? I am now happily a member of this society yeah. um, and want to contribute to this society and for this society to do well, but also that's my heritage. And I, I think that it can be a slightly uncomfortable place to find yourself in. Yeah. And it's a, it's a difficult thing to try and find a position of comfort in. And I think that that's probably something that you've got to do for yourself. So yeah. like you say, you might have your nationist questioned or your westernness questioned by yeah. different people at different times. It's just that it's something that you've got to work out in yourself. Yeah. And I realise that being a comedian slightly helps with this because I found myself recently writing material about why colonialism is undeniably impressive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, irrespective of how awful it was for a country of this size, well, the British East India Company, to be able to go to a country of a billion people and say, right, we're having this hmm. and then doing it. Undeniably good work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Metal. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like... I don't know whether that's the Asian in me or the English in me who is proud of this overachievement. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it reminds me of um, 
the wonderful goodness gracious me sketch of uh, Mr. Everything is Indian. Yes. Uh, yeah, and his son converts to Christianity. Yeah. And he says, like, oh, I thought you'd be upset. It's like everyone in the Bible's Indian. And it's like uh, Jesus yeah. uh, sort of worked for his father. Parents had him without having sex. Indian. Yeah. Indian, yeah. <laughs> uh, And eventually it was, but what about Judas? He uh, betrayed Jesus for pieces of silver. Well, business is business. business yeah. <laughs> and that was the um, attitude. I think that this is a very somber and sobering anniversary to have. If if any of you listening have the pleasure to visit, um, my, my family are from a city called Ahmedabad and uh, Mahatma Gandhi had his ashram on the banks of the Sabarmati River that runs through Ahmedabad. And when you're there, you feel like it's the single most peaceful place in the world and you you can just sit for two hours without thinking or moving or anything, and you just feel this wave of calm. And there's a real profound sadness to know that in the presence of or in the vicinity of that ashram mm. and a place that was the birthplace of so many like powerful ideas about nonviolence and what we can be to one another and be for one another, that such violence nevertheless was carried out that mm. the man who sort of inspired that movement was himself killed uh, by Nathuram Godse, who thought that Gandhi had let Indians down by allowing the partition and uh, allowing, uh, like the creation of Pakistan and that Godse himself was then put to death in a manner that you can't imagine Gandhiji mm. would ever have wanted, wanted but yeah. um, here's the thing that I think that this is a good time to reflect on you know 75 years on from this fact to reflect both on the violence and exclusion and difficulty that arose in that horrible time and also to reflect on the hopes and dreams for the future that were present on the banks of the Sabarmati River mm. in Ahmedabad when that man thought that perhaps we could do things differently and I think that that would be a hopeful thing to think about for the future. Eshan, thank you very much for joining me on The Bunker. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thanks for joining us on The Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favourite podcast app. Fill in our listener survey if you get a chance. The link is in the show notes. And you can get every edition of The Bunker early, plus merchandise and more, when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast and find out how. Speak to you again, India's in the bud. Pakistan and Bangladesh in the bud. <laughs> Eshan Akbar, thank you. Thank you. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ahir Shah The producers were Jacob Archbold Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees with assistant production from Kasia Tomaszewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, 
with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>